Welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I am Vladislav Lilic, a doctoral candidate in modern European history at Vanderbilt University and a host on the channel. Today, I will speak with Dr. Will Smiley, an assistant professor in the Humanities Program at the University of New Hampshire and the author of From Slaves to Prisoners of War, the Ottoman Empire, Russia, and International Law, published in Oxford University Press's series, The History and Theory of International Law, in 2018. In his book, Dr. Smiley examines the emergence of rules of warfare surrounding captivity and slavery in the context of the centuries-long rivalry between two Eurasian empires, the Ottoman and the Russian. This remarkably well-researched and carefully argued monograph uncovers a vibrant inter-imperial legal regime, challenging many conventional narratives about the expansion of modern international law and the European state system. Its pages provide ample material with which we can rethink the supposed linear decline and fall of Ottoman state power and the nature of pre-modern imperial sovereignty, diplomacy, and governance. Dr. Smiley, welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me about your book. Thank you. It's great to be here. As is customary on our channel, I would like us to start by positioning the book within your overarching intellectual and academic trajectory. How did your background and training influence the research and writing of this book? Thanks. Yeah. So I think when I was starting my PhD, I was really interested in looking for a topic that would address the Ottoman role in the world, especially in the 18th century, a period that I was really introduced to, especially by the work of Virginia Oksan, who's uh, one of my kind of heroes in the field. And I was looking for a way to approach the Ottomans in the world in the 18th century as the 18th century gave way to the kind of reform era. But I was also looking for something at kind of the intersection of Ottoman military and legal history. And there, I guess I really came to this book out of a couple of incidents that I discovered in the prime, well, in primary and secondary sources that made me intrigued to ask some more questions about those. And uh, would it help if I elaborated on those incidents? Yes, of course. Yeah. So there were really two of these. One is that early on in the course of my PhD, I was reading uh, the uh, Stanford, the Ottoman historian Stanford Shaw's history of the reform era under Ottoman Sultan Selim III, who ruled from 1789 to 1807. And Selim is most famous in part for forming the Nizam al-Jadid army, kind of a new order army drilled along European lines, uh, marching, you know, marching in order, firing in volleys, things like that. And I noticed that Shaw mentioned almost in passing that the first drill sergeants for this new army were a group of Russian and Prussian prisoners of war. And then he moves on. So I kind of thought, hmm, that's interesting. And then soon after that, I was reading an Ottoman chronicle, uh, really a a chronicle by a man named Tale Sanizade Hafez Abdullah Effendi, who lived in Istanbul in the late 18th century. And he wrote about an incident at the the beginning of one of the ceaseless series of Russo-Ottoman wars. They fought a war against each other pretty much every 20 years, almost like clockwork from the late 17th century until, of course, World War I, which brought down both empires. And so Tele Sanizade lived at the beginning of one of these conflicts in 1787. And he wrote that in that September of that year, war had just broken out between the Ottomans and the Russians. And uh, the Russian fleet had put to sea to challenge the Ottomans. But then one of their ships had been wrecked in a violent storm. 
And they already had a couple of Ottoman merchants on board. They'd taken aboard as kind of captives. But at this point, the roles reversed, he said. And the ship was dismasted. It was hardly steerable. And an Ottoman captive stood up and warned the Russian crew, look, if we you know, let ourselves drift, we're going to get wrecked on the rocks of the Anatolian shoreline. And the people who live there will kill all of us. What you should do is try to steer your course for Istanbul, the Ottoman capital. And in Istanbul, he said, uh, you will become prisoners and your lives will be saved. And when peace is made, you will again be free. And this really struck my imagination, especially compared with the incident I'd already discovered about how Russian prisoners of war helped train the new Ottoman army. So uh, just a lot of things bubbled up here. For, I mean, we don't whether the story is literally true or not, for Tali Sanizade to have told the story in his chronicle, he must have felt it had some plausibility to his audience. And that's what makes it really interesting. It's like the sense that there are, is some shared understanding of what happens to prisoners, from, for one thing. And secondly, that prisoners can serve productive roles after being captured and can become vital sort of vectors of cultural and military exchange. That, you know, prisoners are not killed, are not enslaved, and then they can transmit cultural knowledge of military technology and things like that. And this struck me as really interesting in the history of the Ottoman and Russian empires, which have long been seen as really like kind of implacable foes. And as I said, they did fight wars quite frequently throughout the 17th and 18th centuries. But at the, over, your, over the major question of Russian expansion into, into Eurasia and eventually the Middle East. Uh, and these wars, of course, eventually merged into the Eastern question in European historiography. But as other scholars have pointed out, and I think as my book also quite vocally advocates, you have to see this as not always contentious. Andrew Robarts has made this point. Brian Beck has made this point. I think I'm making this point that the two empires also had some shared interests sometimes. And even in the midst of contestation and fighting, they also worked out rules, that rules come out of the fighting just as much as conflict does. So these kind of two incidents made me think that prisoners of war were a great way to approach that in a way that would combine my interest in kind of seeing the Ottomans in the world, Ottoman military history, and the legal aspects as well, where the Ottomans fit in the international legal regime. Fascinating. And you set up the narrative by discussing how a law of ransom transforms into a law of release. Could you elaborate on these concepts for our listeners and perhaps um, elaborate on how these two empires cooperated to develop a legal regime that was so forceful and so durable? Sure. Yeah, I think what, the book is divided into a couple of parts. So part one really is about kind of what I see as the status quo, which is that up through the late 17th century, prisoners, captives changed hands on across the Ottoman frontiers on every side. And a lot of great scholars have written about various parts of this. But what I try to do in part one is to kind of say, zoom out a little bit and look at things that are common across different contexts. And what you see is that whether it's in the Mediterranean, Western Mediterranean, where you have fairly famous, you know, North African corsairs who are nominally under Ottoman rule, and then you have European corsairs, whether it's in the Eastern Mediterranean, where you have uh, Ottoman and Venetian contestation, whether it's in the Balkans, where you have the Ottomans and Venetians, then the Ottomans and Habsburgs fighting wars, whether it's along the Eurasian steppes, where you have the Ottomans, the Russian Empire, and the Cossacks, or whether it's in the, in the Caucasus. On all those frontiers, and even into Iran, where the Ottomans you know, have a rivalry with Safavid and then Khadjar uh, uh, Iran, uh, uh, even into Iran, on all these frontiers, you see 
people crossing borders as captives. And the main, there are two main fates for them. One is enslavement and the other is uh, ransom. And ransom is largely handled by private actors with the important exception of Russia that has a state fund for ransoming captives. But in general, ransom is something of a privatized business and it's got a whole, a whole fascinating network of brokers and intermediaries that a number of scholars have written about in different contexts. So that's kind of the, the status quo as I begin my story. But what I argue is that beginning in the late 17th century, you get emerging what I call the law of ransom, capitalized to be all, all nifty and jargon, you know, as a kind of nifty term of art. So the law of ransom is a set of practices that kind of codify how ransom works and incorporate formalized methods of ransoming into interstate agreements. And what happens is uh, in, in about 1699, 1700, as the Ottomans wrap up the War of the Holy League, in which they did not do very well against a coalition of uh, pretty much all their neighboring Christian powers, they signed separate treaties with uh, the Russian Empire and with uh, the Habsburg Empire. But what they both encapsulate is a term about ransoming, which kind of codifies the old traditions of privatized ransoming, gives the states larger roles in ransoming, but also ensures that ransom remains the primary route to release and the primary route out of slavery. And this is really important because the people I'm talking about being captured can be military or they can be civilians, especially when coming into the Ottoman Empire. There's not a sharp distinction in Ottoman law or in Ottoman practice that a foreign non-Muslim enemy can legally be captured, can legally be enslaved, whether that is a adult, you know, fighting man, whether it's a woman, whether it's a child, the legal approaches are all the same. And so the legal approaches remain the same as the law of ransom takes shape, that ransom is the way out, which obviously means that your a person's chances for release from slavery depend a lot on the social circumstances they came from. You know, how rich was it, is their family? Who do they know? Do they have networks they can draw upon to raise a ransom? Things like that. And that's always been the case with ransoming economies, but this becomes kind of like codified under the law of ransom, as I call it, in interstate treaties. That lasts about 30 years. Then you find that an important jumping off point comes in the 1730s, when the Ottomans fight a war against uh, Nadir Shah, the short-lived ruler of, of uh, Iran after the fall of, of the Safavids. And then they fight another war right after that against Russia. And at the end of both these conflicts, for somewhat different reasons, Nadir Shah and the Russians demand that their people captured in the conflict be released without ransom. Uh, and I can talk more about the detailed reasons for those demands, but suffice to say, they are made as demands. And they are incorporated into treaties, especially the Russian version of the treaty, uh, Russian treaty in 1739. Meanwhile, the Ottomans also make peace with the Habsburgs and sign a different treaty, which maintains the law of ransom. So you have a different system emerging here between the Ottomans and Russians and the Ottomans and Iranians. And I call this the law of release. And what this is, is a simple rule that when wars end, captives will be released on both sides reciprocally without the payment of ransom. Uh, this at first is a treaty term in just these two treaties, but then it becomes habitual. And in virtually every peace treaty the Ottomans make over the next 100 years or 90 years, let's say to be precise, it shows up. So the Russians start repeating it in different peace treaties. The Ottomans then start extending it to peace treaties with other countries. So it starts with Iran and Russia. The Ottomans extend it to uh, to Habsburg, Austria in 1791. 
It extends uh, to uh, to cover France when the Ottomans make a peace treaty with them in 1802, uh, arguably with the British in 1807, uh, and then the Russians all along the way. You know, in every after every war in 1774, 1792, 1812, 1829, it comes up again and again. So this is the law of release, and it's a quite a simple rule. You know, when wars end, so people from the opposing side will be sent home as captives without ransom. But determining what it means and the parameters of it creates legal and diplomatic and social questions that echo for you know decades. So one question is, who does it cover? Does it cover only the subjects of the state in question or other people? And how do you determine whose subject someone even is? What is subject to it? Or what about religious converts? That's another open question. And so all these questions have to be worked out, but the, and they are, which I think shows the elaboration of a system of rules. The law of release is not just a single rule that gets put in a peace treaty one time. It is instead a set of principles, a rule, and it's unwritten interpretations, it's you know lesser corollaries, it's definitions that grow up around it in the much the same way you'd expect of any legal regime, that rules need interpretation, they need application, and they need extension over time. So that's the transition from the law of ransom to the law of release. And the law of release, in short, dictates that very broad categories determine people's fates. No longer is it an individualized matter of who are you and how much ransom can you raise. It now becomes a question of what category of people do you fit into and how are those is that category of people to be dealt with? Are you in the category of people, if you're a Russian, for example, who's captured in the Ottoman Empire, are you in the category of people whom the Ottoman Empire will come and find and set free, or are you not? And that matters more than whether you know somebody back home who has a lot of money and can ransom you out. It's the category of people you're in. Fascinating. And here you argue that this inter-imperial legal practice helps both of these empires delineate their populations and define their subjecthood regimes in the 18th century. Uh, could you expand a bit on that point? Yeah, I think I might want to rephrase that a little bit. It's not quite that, that these, these rules help them refine it. I mean, in a certain sense it does, but I would prefer to say that it forces them to define these things. So the 1739 treaty that I take as kind of the touchstone, because the Ottoman-Iranian version of this was worked out a couple of years earlier, but it's a little fuzzier. The Ottoman-Russian version simply states that uh, slaves and captives on both sides will be released. And this creates a problem, as I said, of you know what categories of people this applies to. So uh, the, at first, the, it applies to people that the Ottomans see as Rus in their term, which is a term that roughly means subject to the Russian Empire, but it can also mean people who are speaking Eastern Slavic language, who are Christian. Uh, for example, people, people resident in modern day Ukraine, even if they are beyond the boundaries of the Russian Empire at the time. So it's something, it's somewhat of a fuzzy term. Uh, it gets pretty quickly defined to mean Russian subjects in a legal sense. And you see this in a really fascinating case of the Kalmyk people. So the Kalmyks at this time were a uh, part, were a, uh, were a, a, a nomadic people on the fringes of the, uh, of the Russian Empire, a Turkic people, and they owed allegiance to the Russian Empire. But whether they were legally subjects of the Russian Empire under Russian law was a little bit fuzzy. Uh, Michael Kartokovsky has written some good stuff about this. Uh, and so the Kalmyks, though, if they are captured by the Ottomans and enslaved, for example, while serving in the Russian army 
or you know, auxiliary forces fighting alongside the Russians, they have a claim to be released under the treaty on the grounds that they can argue they are Russian subjects. And in fact, a, I have documents from the uh, Russian archives showing that quite a number of them are released from Ottoman captivity. And yet what's interesting is Kalmyks for the most part are not Christian. So the Russian, I mentioned earlier, the Russian empire for a long time had to run an actual ransom fund for Russia, ransoming captured Russians. For the most part, that fund was used to, to ransom Christians because the Russian empire felt it had a Christian duty to uh, rescue, to rescue enslaved Orthodox Christians. But here you're, you're seeing Kalmyks who are almost certainly not Christian being released because they are Russian subjects. So that, that definition gets drawn. And as you see what I'm trying to argue here is that uh, it's the act of deciding who to set free that requires the states to define what subjecthood means. Because setting someone free from Ottoman captivity means applying state coercive resources. The Ottoman state has to send someone out to usually literally knock on the doors, you know, of of uh, of powerful elite households and say, "Do you have any Russians here?" If slave owners re resist releasing their captives, the Ottoman state then has to coerce them to do it. The Ottomans pay compensation, which is nowhere near the value of ransom as time goes on, but it still is an expense, and they're putting their money and their coercive resources into this, and they want to decide who they have to apply those resources to, and so. The fact that it applies to Russian subjects becomes quite important. And those lines harden over time. For a brief period in 1774-75, after the Russians have the decisive military upper hand due to victories against the Ottomans in a really a war between 1768 and 1774 that was really disastrous for the Ottomans. So after these epic Russian victories, they have enough political capital that they press to actually release all slaves in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, not 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 just uh, not just Russian subjects, but they quickly back down from this because it becomes so difficult in the face of Ottoman resistance, and the Russians have to decide for their part who they care about releasing enough to put their political capital behind it, and they decide what they really care about are Russian subjects. So you see these lines kind of like take shape early. They waver. They're challenged from both sides, and then they stabilize. So the question of whose subject you are becomes vitally important. And you see this later on with sort of edge cases. Like for example, uh, at one point, uh, the French get a couple of Knights of Malta released on the grounds that they are French subjects, even though they live on Malta and have probably not gotten back to France for a long time. You get questions about uh, people who are the children of diplomats. You know, what country are the subject, subject are they? The subject of the country that sent the diplomat or the country where they grew up, where the diplomat is posted. You get uh, questions about Minorcans, who are briefly under British jurisdiction in the early 1800s, therefore they are British subjects, arguably all kinds of interesting, like the kinds of legal cases that create precedents get worked out here. But that's one of the lines is subjecthood. The other one is religious conversion. And so the treaties from the beginning state that converts to the religion of the captor country will not be released. So those who convert to Islam in the Ottoman Empire or those who convert to Christianity in the Russian Empire will not be released. This, as you can imagine, opens up a whole Pandora's box of questions about what does it mean to convert? What definition of conversion are they going to use? What if people change their mind? Uh, and are these, conversion, these definitions of conversion compatible with the religious traditions that they operate within? And that's a whole other question that, again, is a question of people's status that requires like legalizing and formalizing a definition of what religion someone, an individual is in the eyes of the state. 
And I'm happy to talk more about that if necessary, but I'll leave it there in terms of like these ways of crystallizing and defining and hammering down identities that the states have to do in order to implement these release procedures for captives. Wonderful. And I think this implies that the Islamic legal tradition plays only a tangential role in the establishment of this regional legal regime, that the Ottoman Empire is actually capable of creating a legal regime for itself uh, based on war and peacemaking capabilities and uh, not necessarily on the Islamic legal tradition. What does what, what, what is the role that Islam plays in, 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 in this? I think I would say more than tangential, but I think you have, mm-hmm. you're making a good point. So I would say the Islamic legal tradition is one of the, is an important commitment the Ottoman state has. The Ottoman state is formally committed to the Islamic legal tradition, by which I mean, you know, not so much a code of rules, but the tradition of legal interpretation by jurists over the centuries, the Hanafi fiqh. Um, the, uh, the tradition of legal interpretation by jurists who have interpreted the Quran and other, other sources, the Hadith, and the Ottomans are committed to this tradition and to, to kind of, uh, to respecting the scholars who interpret the legal tradition. But there's also flexibility within that tradition for the Ottoman state. They try hard to create flexibility. And beyond that, uh, the Ottoman state is willing to improvise and to kind of look the other way when it wants to for political benefits. But I don't think they ever relinquish that commitment. And it's also not tangential. The categories of Islamic law and kind of like the common, the, the common sense simplified interpretations of it continue to influence Ottoman policy, even if they don't refer to particular, you know, particular manuals of jurisprudence or particular fatwas or legal opinions. Uh, they, and they certainly, they do that from time to time. But even when they're not, the categories of Islamic law still influence them. I think a good example actually is the question of how they determine conversion to Islam. So the treaties say converts to Islam within the Ottoman Empire will not be returned, which creates this question of what does it mean to convert to Islam? And so the problem is that under Islamic legal interpretations and in, under the Hanafi school the Ottomans subscribe to, conversion to Islam is a matter of reciting the Shahada, the confession of faith, with internal conviction, meaning it. And the way you prove that in, in a court, in an Ottoman Sharia court, for example, is the testimony of three competent male Muslim witnesses. So you might say, okay, well, the treaty says that converts to Islam will not be returned. So if someone is thought to have converted or not, or it's, it's open to question, you bring in the witnesses to court. Well, the Russians are not willing to trust that. The Russians don't trust Ottoman witnesses. They think Ottoman witnesses lie in order to, you know, keep to pretend captives have converted when they haven't in order to keep them in the empire, keep them enslaved. Uh, There's certainly an incentive to do that. Uh, But this kind of Russian distrust, I think, reflects more broadly a sort of growing distrust by European Christian powers that other scholars have written about towards the Ottoman legal system in this period. So the Russians aren't willing to do that. And it will cause endless legal and diplomatic headaches, the Ottomans think, if every contested conversion case has to be brought before the Sharia courts and resolve with witnesses, and then you have the Russian diplomats challenging those witnesses and attacking their credibility, and it will become a major nightmare. So they adopt a simplified test, which is what I call the circumcision test, which is that a man who is circumcised is considered to be Muslim. A man who is not, is not Muslim. And this applies, of course, only to captured Russians. You're not talking about the entire population. Among captured Russians, this is the case. Now, this obviously does not help with 
determining the religion of captured women or captured children. But the Russian state is not terribly worried about that early on. They're especially looking, I think, for captured soldiers more than anything else because they're a military resource. That seems to be what they're most concerned about. But the circumcision test is, here's where it gets interesting for Islamic law. It is not a valid test under Islamic law. Under no school of interpretation that, that I'm aware of, especially not, certainly not those followed by the Ottoman, Ottoman uh, government, is the mere fact of a man's being circumcised evidence that he has made a valid conversion to Islam. However, it was a custom that when people did, con when men did convert, circumcision was a marker of the conversion. And for uh, you know, Ottoman male children, it was a coming of age that marked their arrival sort of as like, you know, be, uh, male members of the Muslim community becoming adults. So it is a thing that matters in the minds of Ottomans and that is tied to religion and to law. And so they kind of press it into service as sort of an ad hoc test that looks legal, even if it's not actually what the rules of Islamic law would say. And I think more importantly, here's where the pragmatism comes in, more importantly for the Ottomans, it is simple and easy to administer. They literally just look at the bodies of captives and decide what group they go into. Muslim, not Muslim. Go, to the, go, go back to the Russians, stay here. Easy, done, no room for dispute. The Russians, though, are worried that people will be forcibly circumcised and that once they're forcibly circumcised, they count as, they count as Muslims, so they'll stay. So the Russians uh, push for what I call the confession test, which the Ottomans agree to later on. And here, again, you see even more clearly how Islamic law is an influence and it affects the way the Ottoman officials think even if they're not asking for formal legal opinions. So here, what the confession test is, is that every captive will be called in at, on war's end, they'll be called before a commission of Ottoman and Russian officials. And in front of a Russian official and an Ottoman official, they will be asked, what is your religion? And if they say, I am a Muslim, they will stay in the Ottoman Empire. If they say, I am a Christian, they will go back to the Russian Empire. I should note as an aside here, there is certainly the possibility of Jewish captives from the from Russian Empire, since they did have many Jewish subjects and some of them served in the military, especially later on after the after they were made subject to conscription. But I've never come across a case of a captured Jewish subject in the 18th century, so that's not a, it's an interesting question. What would happen? But I have not come across it. So they are asked the confession test. They are asked their religion. What they say on that moment will determine what the states do. If they say I'm a Christian, they go back now. The problem is this is still not a formally valid test of, it's not legally a valid definition of conversion under Hanafi Islamic law. Uh, you know, you're, because a person who validly converted, again, by having said the Shahada, the confession of faith in the, in the presence of the proper witnesses with internal conviction, that person might years later when the war ends say, wait a second, I'm actually a Christian, send me home. And the two states would have no choice under the Ottoman rules but to respect that. And I do find cases of Ottoman subjects, including a judge and including a slave owner, protesting and saying this is invalid. In fact, this is apostasy. It's illegal and theoretically punishable by death that this person, they converted. I know they converted. I saw them do it. And now they are saying, I've always been a Christian. Send me home. So it's not a valid test under Islamic law, but it does determine Ottoman state action. And the Ottoman officials, well, they know there are these objections. The Ottoman officials don't seem bothered by this, not because they are ignoring Islamic law or kind of uh, just, you know, getting around it. They think that they are honoring principles. So they, they use the term itikad or internal conviction to describe what they're looking for here. 
that, that is the same term used for the internal conviction necessary to convert to Islam in the first place. But they're kind of using it in a different sense to justify this. And so I think what you see here again is like the Ottoman state is acting pragmatically to advance its diplomatic and legal and military interests. But the Islamic legal tradition is always there. And the, I, the principles behind it and some of the basic concepts of it influence the actions of officials, even when they don't officially refer to it. On other instances, I should make very clear, and I'm just not talking about these right here. There are certainly other instances, and I've written about some of them in the book or elsewhere, where they do refer formally to legal opinions. They ask the muftis, the chief legal advisor, of the, the chief mufti of the empire, for a legal opinion on the validity of certain actions. So they certainly do care about Islamic law in its, in its formal details on many cases. But even in the cases where they don't, they are still thinking in terms of those categories. I think it's, I think you see an interesting portrait of the Ottoman state kind of maneuvering here between its international engagements, which it certainly takes very seriously, and its international obligations under treaties, but also its commitments to Islamic law, which I will insist they do take seriously, even if they, you know, in the same sense that any government does, they sometimes try to maneuver around or at least maneuver within or kind of like skirt the edges of the formal legal principles even as those legal principles are always still in their minds, shaping their mindset and their actions. Wonderful. And following your chronology, this system stabilizes around 1800, and the Ottoman state starts taking military captives into state custody, uh, which leads to a development of what you call a uh, prisoner of war system. And that really resembles what we today would, would recognize as the prisoner of war system. Uh, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, I view this as a, as a logical response to the development of the law of release. But, so by the mid-18th century, it's very clear, especially we, so the Ottomans' main military rival in this era is Russia. And by the mid-18th century, let's say the, especially the beginning of the 1768 war against Russia, it's very clear that peace treaties mean renewing the law of release and that when wars end captives will be sent home to or not I shouldn't say home will be sent back to their to the empire that is that claims them um and you see by the early beginnings of the 1768 war which was a, a military disaster for the ottomans it lost in the crimea uh but in in, in the war begins you see a sense among ottoman military commanders that they start taking actually not i shouldn't say as the war begins by the midpoint of the war they seem to realize that peace is on the horizon and that the law of release will be renewed. And you see ever-growing numbers of captured Russian soldiers, designated as such, sometimes including their ranks, being collected in the camp of the main Ottoman army in the Balkans along the Danube, and then sent in convoys to Istanbul. So the Ottomans are collecting Russian soldiers and to a lesser extent sailors. They don't capture as many sailors in this conflict but they're collecting Russian soldiers and sending them to the imperial capital. Now, you might say, you know, the Ottomans have done this before. They've taken captives and sent them to, to the imperial capital to row on galleys. And that's certainly true. The Ottomans for a long time operated a, map, a system of slave labor to propel their galleys. And this was a dangerous, backbreaking job. Uh, people didn't live very long. But what's new about this conflict is that by the midpoint of the, of the 1768 to 1774 Russo-Ottoman War, they are, first of all, collecting more captives than I've seen before and sending them from the camp back to Istanbul. But at the very same time, the Navy has turned away from ore-powered galleys. The, the 
famous Ottoman naval battle of Cheshme, where their fleet was virtually annihilated by the Russians in 1770. After that, after that battle, as they begin to rebuild the fleet, they're rebuilding it largely with sail-powered vessels, not with ore-powered vessels. So at the same moment the Ottoman state is collecting more and more military captives, they need, don't need those people's labor. The, you know, the, main, the main labor use of young, able-bodied, unskilled men in the Ottoman prisons would have been to row galleys, and now there are far fewer galleys to row. So these two lines kind of cross, looking at it as a, as a graph of how many military men the Ottoman state is taking into its own hands as a, and not allowing to be sold into slavery versus what actual labor needed has for those men. Their lines are crossing. And I think the, the explanation here is that they recognize they're going to have to send people back when the war is over. And it is a lot easier to return someone who is in state custody than it is to go searching around the entire empire looking for that person in private households. Uh, and sure enough, they do return many of these men during the war, during a uh, a truce. They have an exchange of captives. Some of these men go home and they seem to redouble their efforts to collect captives after that. Uh, and then you see this again in the 1787 war, the next conflict with Russia. From the very beginning of the conflict, they are collecting military men in their hands. And there seems to be an understanding that for military men, this is what captivity means. You come, you get captured, you hang out, and you go home. That's what that's what this guy tells, as I, this story I began with from the Chronicle of Halei that's the story that he has his Ottoman prisoner tell the Russians. You should surrender to the Ottomans and you'll, your lives will be saved. When peace comes, you'll again be free. Now, I want to make very clear, Ottoman captivity is not by any means comfortable or safe. And it would not comply with, the, with most, of the, most of the understandings of modern international humanitarian law for the proper treatment of prisoners of war. Uh, they, you know, it's, it's people die of disease in very large numbers. They are often not fed very well. If these are uncomfortable quarters, I'm not by trying to make an argument the Ottomans were humane. Um, but I, the argument I'm making is that there is this category that emerges that we can recognize as prisoners of war, meaning they are military men held by the enemy state because they are military men with the understanding that, 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 that they're being held temporarily and that when the war ends, whenever that is, they'll be set free or let's say return to the custody of their original state for people for, for draftees conscripted into service. This is not freedom, no matter what you're talking about, but that's the, that, that's the, those are the parameters I take for what a prisoner of war is, because I think those are the things that can be a little bit presentist here. As you asked in your question, that's what we recognize looking at it. We can recognize looking at these people that by this point we say, Oh yeah, that's a prisoner of war as a descriptive definition. It's a military person held based on that status by the enemy state, in custody, not mainly for their labor, but mainly for the sake of releasing them when the war is over. And that's what you see developing by the mid 18th century. It's very solid by the early, by the beginning of the 19th century. Not every military man captured by the Ottomans comes into the state. It depends on how well they can enforce orders from the center, you know, how, how well they can control the actions of particular soldiers. Ottoman soldiers might still kill captives on the battlefield in the heat of battle, as soldiers of every army sometimes do to greater or lesser extents. Uh, and this does not apply to enemy non-military captives. So you see a distinction emerging here that uh, the Ottoman army is losing battles and losing wars in this period. So they're less and less able to break into enemy territory. But on the rare occasions they do, for example, in the Habsburg Banat in 1788, when the Ottoman army is able to break into enemy territory, they still do enslave and sell Austrian subject women and children 
and some older men. But what they don't do in large numbers when you're talking about the main Ottoman army is enslave and sell enemy soldiers. So that distinction emerges. And again, it emphasizes this, this, this category of prisoners of war that is emerging, that enemy military men are the state's are, are the state's business. They are in the state's custody, not individual custody. Uh, so that's where I think you see a category we'd recognize as a category of POWs emerge. And only once that category exists, can you talk about whether their treatment is adequate. And again, I want to emphasize, I'm not trying to argue their treatment, treatment would be adequate under any modern definition, but they are prisoners of war. And that's the category that, for example, this guy in Palestine's audience chronicle can invoke to convince his uh, the Russians to surrender. And here, the book contains a series of wonderful vistas through which we can perceive agency of these prisoners or captives or some sort of a legal activity from below when prisoners are actually protesting their conditions, uh, claiming um, or asking to be assigned uh, labor uh, labor uh, duties, even escaping. Um, and how does how does this you know, uh, activity from below uh, redefine this legal regime, if in any way? Yeah, I think this part of the book was the part I had the most fun researching. So I draws on a, an amazing source base that, so the book runs roughly from, you know, seven, the early, seven, early 18th century up until the mid 19th century. But this part you're talking about where I drill, drill down on individual experiences and how they negotiated really draws mostly from the 1787 to 1792 Russo-Ottoman War, which is one of the less well-known Russo-Ottoman conflicts. It was an Ottoman defeat, like most of them were, but not quite as disastrous as the one in 1768 to 1774. Uh, but what made it really useful to me is that in the middle of this conflict, a new sultan took the throne, uh, Selim III, who is known as a reformer. He's the guy I mentioned earlier who formed this uh the, the Nizami Jadid army trained by Russian and Austrian prisoners of war. And Selim was a very active sultan. Uh, another historian, Betul Basharan, has talked has emphasized how he is kind of a micromanager and kind of like obsessed with order and putting things in order. And I think that's absolutely seen with the case of prisoners. And he, he wrote thousands of what they call Hatta Humayuns or imperial rescripts, which are reports from the imperial council to him, which he will then read and then scroll across the top his response to the case. And so it's a rare, in the 18th century, it's a relatively rare glimpse of the internal workings of sultanic decision-making, of the back and forth between the sultan and his council, and kind of the raw, unfiltered thoughts of the sultan himself. And what's, that's, it's interesting to see the kind of top-down approach there, but at the same time, what these documents also reveal is that often the sultan was presented with the petitions or or kind of paraphrases of petitions of particular captives. So you hear their voices to the best extent possible in the Ottoman sources. Uh, and what you're seeing really is kind of as a legal historian, I would say it's all what I would call edge cases. It's people whose situations are a little bit unique, a little bit weird, challenge the basic categories of the law. And these people trying to push at those categories, push at those boundaries and advance their interests as best they can. So people, so you see people ranging from, I mean, some of these examples, um, one of my favorites is the case of three Kazan Tatars who are, so these are Russian subjects who are Muslim. Uh, the Kazan Tatars were conquered by the Russian empire or by, by Muscovy, I should say, in the 16th century. And these are 
Russian, Kazan, Russian subject Kazan Tatars, who are Muslims, who were captured fighting in the Russian army against the Ottomans. And they petitioned to Selim III saying, look, we're Muslims. Under Islamic law, you cannot enslave fellow Muslims. And you're keeping us here with these Christian prisoners of war. We can't pray properly at the right times of day because they disturb us. You're you know, inhibiting our ability to practice our religion, our shared religion that you have as well. And more generally, you can, again, you can't enslave fellow Muslims. So you should let us go. And there's a long tradition I found from other documents of the Ottomans accepting these such petitions. They'll often take captured Kazan Tatars and enlist them in the Ottoman army on the theory they're Muslims, they should really be loyal to the Sultan. In this case, Selim gets very angry and denies the petition, saying, uh, whether Muslim or Christian, my, uh, my enemy is my enemy. One who fights against us is an enemy. Don't let them go. And these guys aren't let go. So, but this is a, just one of those cases where like, they're challenging the legal boundaries. And I think the principle that emerges from this case, counterintuitively, is that the fact that they are Muslim gives them fewer rights under this regime than the fact that then, then they would have if they were Christian Russians who then converted in captivity to Islam. So kind of a weird, a weird paradox there. Other cases you have, for example, the son of the Spanish envoy to Naples, who is enlisted in the Russian Navy as a volunteer officer, a guy named Zambakari. Uh, and what is he? Who can, you know, is he a Russian subject? Is he a Spanish subject? Is he uh, a subject of the Papal States since he was, since he grew up? I'm sorry, did I say Naples? I meant to say, uh, I'm sorry, Bologna. We uh, grew up in Bologna, not, I, you know, I'm sorry, yes. Uh, what is he? What is his legal status? There was another case. Uh, there's a, a Frenchman who is in, in the Knights of Malta who enlists in the Russian Navy and is captured named Lombard. And does he have the right to request release from the French ambassador? All kinds of just like these cases proliferate. Then you have, these are all fairly well-connected, wealthy officers. You also have a much larger number of, uh, of much less famous, for example, Prussians. There's a, a fascinating dynamic in dozens of cases of Prussians who are conscripted into the Prussian army, you know, the post Peter the Great Prussian army are conscripted and trained, forced to learn military skills, including, you know, drill, military drill, which is quite a valuable, valuable uh, commodity. They then desert from the Prussian army, enlist in the Austrian army, and then fight against the Ottomans and either are captured or just defect to the Ottomans. And then claim, hey, we're the subjects of Prussia, which is a neutral state, in fact, an, a friendly state to the Ottomans. So as the subjects of Prussia, we should be let go and sent back to Prussia. And the Prussian ambassador to the Ottomans is quite happy to say, yes, we'll take these guys because they're deserters and we want them back in our army. But will the Ottomans let them go or not? You know, one position among the Ottomans is these people are, whatever their subjecthood is, they fought against us, they should not be released. Or another position is these guys know valuable military skills. Why, do we, why are we releasing them? We should hire them and learn from them. So there's this whole menagerie of interesting characters. In another case, you have a large number of Ottoman subjects who are of Greek origin, Greek Christians, who enlist in the Russian Navy often before the war began, then get captured by the Ottomans in Russian service. And the Ottomans have debates about whether they should simply execute these people as being essentially traitors or pirates, or whether they should treat them as Russian soldiers. And then when the war ends, the Russians try to claim that these Ottoman subject Greeks should be released into their custody and sent back to Russia when the Ottomans want to keep them in the Ottoman Empire and send them home to their home in the Greek islands. So all kinds of, you know, cases here. And 
subjects will try to, uh, captives will try to make their claims, often relying on subjecthood or religion, which again, I think, by the way, reinforces the importance of these categories I talked about, that it's not just states, it's also individuals who come to understand that the rules, the rules that have been created force people to define who they are, how you see yourself as a subject, at least instrumentally, what you're going to claim in front of the states, what claims they'll put forward. And people think of themselves through these categories. Um, and they, they use these categories. And sometimes they get what they're going for. They get their objective. They get set free or whatever. Other times they don't. There's a whole other fascinating subset of cases of Russian soldiers who convert to Islam at just the right moment to avoid being released and sent back to Russia, which seems pretty clearly to me like an effort to avoid returning to Russian military service, preferring instead to make a new life in the Ottoman Empire as hopefully free Muslims. That's another whole fascinating subset here. People, basically, people recognize the two routes they have to improve their conditions are claiming subjecthood or claiming religious conversion. And those are the important things, whereas a century earlier, the important things might have been who do I know? What kind of ransom can I raise? Now it's who am I? What category do I fit into? And so these claims have, I think are important in two different ways. One is that just by existing in large numbers, they exert kind of an upward pressure on the states really realize they have to nail down these categories and define them in order to control and adjudicate all these claims. In the same way that you see in any field of legal history, that when you get a big body of litigation on some particular matter, whether it's you know railroads in the 19th century in the US or something like that, when you get a lot of litigation on a question, you have to refine the doctrine and refine the categories and elaborate the rules. So the, the questions from the demands from captives force that. But I think also just by existing, they show how people's mindsets change as they realize what factors are going to govern their fate and what language to speak to uh, speak to state authorities. I think this parallels things scholars have seen later on in terms of subjecthood and nationality. For example, Will Hanley's work on Alexandria, as people learn kind of what scripts they have to speak from uh, to get what they get what they want out of the state, or at least try to. And here the reader realizes that other foreign powers, including the Atlantic Maritime states, Britain, France, the Netherlands, embrace Ottoman rules to try to protect their subjects or their supposed subjects. Uh, this strongly questions and challenges the conventional English school accounts of how international law spread from Western Europe outward. Yeah, I think that... so. Yeah, I, what I find fascinating is by the late 18th century into the early 19th century, what you see is that, so you know, the Ottomans throughout the, throughout the 18th century have had three main imperial rivals, Russia first and foremost, secondarily, I think, Habsburg, Austria, and then to a lesser extent from time to time, uh, Iran or Persia, whether that's under the Safavids or under the Qajars or under uh, Nadir Shah. But as the, as the basically the era, the age of revolutions and the Napoleonic Wars start in the late 18th century, the Ottomans fight wars against people they've basically been friends with before. For example, most famously when the French, Napoleon invades Egypt in 1798, uh, the Ottomans find themselves at war with France, which has long been an ally of theirs. Uh, later on, they fight a brief war against Britain uh, in 1807. So, and as they go into these conflicts, first of all, they, the Ottoman central authorities, to the extent they have the power to do so, generally adopt the same prisoner of war system with regard to these these states' captives. And everyone takes for granted, and indeed it is the case, that when wars end, the law of release will also be renewed. So I think what you see here is like the Ottomans kind of as the node of their own regional legal order, that 
anybody who comes in contact with the, with the Ottoman Empire ends up adopting these rules, either in practice or in treaties, uh, for how to deal with captives. And I, I think that's interesting because it shows you that it makes us help us think of like international law as being something that can be. So I think there's the English school you mentioned. There's also a, I think a common way of thinking about international law that says, yes, our current international legal system is a European system. And once there were other systems, there was a, you know, people have talked about a Chinese system, a system of Islamic law. Islamic law can be seen as a system of international law. And that's all valid. But what I think this shows is that the really interesting stuff happens. The fact that you should see international law not as being defined by existing within an empire necessarily or within a civilization, however one wants to define that term, but as between states and between empires. Uh, Jane Burbank has hinted at this point as well. I think that you need to think of the Ottomans show that you can't, it takes two to tango, right? You have to have some people talking about rules. Uh, if you're interested in international law as practiced by empires, by diplomats, you need at least two parties to argue about it and to obey it. It's not enough to have one scholar or even a group of scholars sitting down and writing about it and agreeing on it. You need some contestation. You need some conflict, really. And the Ottoman case shows you get these systems springing up between rival empires of different religions and different cultural or civilizational commitments, which require them to kind of like creatively interleave different traditions. This is what I talked about early on about Islamic law, that the principles of Islamic law, certain elements of the Islamic legal tradition are clearly visible within the law of captivity here, but it's not directly based on it or a simple, you know, extension of the Hanafi Islamic law of CR or the law of how to deal with non-Muslims. It is not, it is coming out from a shared, contested negotiation with Russia, with Austria, with Iran, rather than simply by the Ottomans unilaterally deciding what law is. So you see law emerging that way and you see the Ottomans as being not just recipients of rules developed elsewhere, but as active agents in shaping rules. Now, I want to be clear about the limits of this argument. I'm not trying to argue, you know, elements of this come to resemble what we recognize today, most notably the definition of a prisoner of war. This category exists in a way we recognize today in modern in the modern European international law. I'm not trying to argue that the Ottoman experience directly led to that. It's, I'm not I'm not trying to make an argument that, you know, as some European scholar somewhere said, we should do this because the Ottomans are doing that. I'm not trying to argue that. I think you see a story of parallelism and alternative paths here. There's a story of convergence. The Ottomans are converging with what we what, with what we take for granted now, but that doesn't mean they are directly leading to the formation of what we have now. So I want to make that distinction clear. But they and I also don't see any influence. You know, it's not as if the Russians and the French deal with each other on the basis of rules that they both use when dealing with the Ottomans. It's as a the Ottomans are kind of a hub and spoke. The Ottomans are the hub. And the different empires they interact with use these rules when talking to the Ottomans. That doesn't mean it becomes, it spreads through the broader network to affect how those other empires deal with each other. But I do think it's extremely important and interesting to see how the Ottomans can be a legal agent in shaping how others deal with them, at least. And, and many others uh, who do not have political ties with strong, powerful states remain excluded or un unprotected under this regime in the early 19th century. You mentioned Greek and Serbian rebels, Corsairs, and uh, Circassian and, and African slaves. Uh, what happens to, to, these, to these categories? Yeah, I think this is kind of the story of those left out, that, yeah. uh, as I said, it becomes become really important for getting released, becomes a person's subjecthood, and whether they've converted to, a, to the capture state to Islam in the Ottoman case. Uh, and 
release from captivity really becomes a matter of what state can make a demand on your behalf. And you see this, we talked a few minutes ago about all these cases that I found in the 1787 war, people trying to negotiate their own fate and in doing so show the importance of subjecthood and religion. The flip side of that is that all those claims depend on asserting a tie to a foreign foreign state that will be enough to get them released. And people who can't assert those ties to a sovereign to a sovereign empire are really out of luck. And you see this on a small scale with Maltese. So Malta remains the base for the the pirate the uh, knights of the knights of uh, the, the Maltese knights who who raid the, who raid Ottoman shipping up until Napoleon takes the island in 1798 on his way to Egypt. And when Maltese crewmen are captured, there's this weird paradox where their officers are usually French-born Knights of Malta who might be able to request release. That, this is, and whether, whether the, the Knights of Malta have any claims to the Ottomans is a very, very old question that Molly Green, for example, has written about even in the 17th century. But the Maltese crewmen have no such rights, and they are basically stuck in Ottoman captivity and slavery because they are not soldiers, they're not POWs, and they're not tied to a major imperial state that can demand their release. Likewise, slavery itself lasts well lasts through the 19th century in the Ottoman Empire. But and a number of great scholars are writing about Ottoman slavery, really taking it seriously more than in previous decades. Uh, but studies of 19th century slavery really look at two main categories of people because that's who's in Ottoman slavery in the, for the most part in the 19th century. People from the Caucasus and people from sub-Saharan Africa. What's missing here is the fact that up until the 18th century, tremendous numbers of slaves in Russia in the Ottoman Empire, perhaps even the majority, would have been uh, Slavs from what's now the what what became the Russian Empire. People the Ottomans would refer to as Rus, uh, you know, largely Russian subjects, but also people from modern-day Ukraine, from what was then Poland, Lithuania, and these people are removed from Ottoman slavery in part because of the simple you know military logic of. With when the Tatars, when the Crimean Tatars are annexed by Russia in 1783, and as the Russians win wars, raids into Russian territory to take captives become harder and harder. But there's also a legal logic here that anybody who is enslaved, for example, captives and soldiers in wartime, has a foolproof legal claim to release through the law of release. So through both mil- military action and legal action, the uh, you know Russians and Austrians are essentially removed from uh, Ottoman slavery leaving behind what we see in the 19th century, which is people from the Caucasus and from sub-Saharan Africa. And what binds them together is often that they have no imperial ties that they are, can assert or that will be taken seriously uh, by, by the authorities. So you kind of see people, the people left out here. And that also applies to Ottoman subjects who rebel. So I mentioned earlier, you know, the rules that were released apply to Russian subjects. The Russians for a while try to extend this to all, to all uh, captives, or at least all Christian captives in Ottoman custody, uh, in Ottoman slavery, in the 1770s, they try this. That would they are thinking largely about Ottoman Greeks who rebelled against the Ottomans when they do this. They back down from that, and so 50 years later, in, a, in the 1820s, when the Greek War of Independence breaks out, which of course leads to Greek independence, the Ottomans unleash enslavement on a vast scale as a deliberate military weapon targeted at Greeks in areas that rebel, as kind of a, a disincentive to rebel as a punishment, but also as an incentive for Ottoman soldiers to be mobilized, that the Ottoman state says, we can't pay you properly, but we're happy to uh, let you enslave the people you can capture. And so Hakan Erdem's written about this. I've got an article in progress about this as well. 
I touch on a little bit in the book that Greek rebels, or let's not say rebels, Greeks in areas that are declared to be in rebellion are entirely unprotected from, from enslavement. And what they also find is they don't have the legal protections of any foreign empire. Russia can and certainly does protest and tries to convince the Ottomans to, to find people and enslaved Greeks and release them. They try to raise ransom for them. Uh, Lucien Freire has written about this. Uh, but what they can't do is assert a categorical legal claim that these Greeks must be released under the terms of treaties because they don't have to be. They're left out. They are not Russian subjects. The same thing happens on a smaller scale earlier on when Serbians, when Serbia rebels in the early 1800s. So you see these kind of categories of pirates, of rebels, or I should say of Ottoman subject rebels, or of people from outside the, outside the boundaries of major empires, Africans or Caucasians, being left in Ottoman captivity and slavery because they don't have the thing that matters the most for slavery in this period, which is possession of a legal imperial subjecthood from a powerful empire that has a treaty with the Ottomans that can put pressure on. Intriguing. And as we come to our final minutes, I would try to end where you end the book with the ascendancy of the Atlantic powers and the Crimean War and the War of 1877-78. Um, do regional rules of captivity and civilian slavery simply fade away with the growth of humanitarian concerns and the late 19th century codification of the rules of war? I think fade away is one way to put it. Yes. I, what I find is the Ottoman state, like there's not... In kind of a lot of history of international law, what you'd expect to find is a moment when the Ottoman state says, we are turning our back on the tradition of Islamic law. We now, you know, abide by the laws of Europe. The, and it's kind of like, the you know, where is that moment we can look for? But with respect to captivity, you simply don't find that. What you find is the Ottomans go into the Crimean War doing largely what they have been doing for the past several decades. So... I talked about how the Ottoman prisoner of war system is established by the late 18th century. The treatment of captives, I also said, is still pretty bad, even if they are prisoners of war. Their treatment somewhat gets better in the, in the 1820s, I think largely as a result of uh, the Ottomans adopting a new model army of their own. And I, I won't go into details here, but the treatment does get better. But it's still the same basic system as it was in earlier conflicts. The early Crimean War is basically similar. The Ottomans come into the Crimean War doing the same thing. Uh, and they seem to follow the precedents of previous wars. When the Crimean War ends, the treaty, which is signed by the Ottomans, I mean, the Crimean War is, to a certain extent, yet another Russo-Ottoman war, like all those I've talked about. But it's a Russo-Ottoman war with the crucial difference that the French and the British join on the Ottoman side. And as a result, the Ottomans don't lose, uh, although it's unclear if they really win. Uh, and... As the war ends, all the, all the belligerents sign the same peace treaty, the Treaty of Paris, which simply mandates the return of POWs. It doesn't have the very particular Russo-Ottoman terms that, we've, that I'm used to seeing in peace treaties through previous decades, you know, about only Russian subjects will be released, about uh, captives in private hands, or about religious conversion. And yet, if you look at the implementation of the treaty between the Russian and Ottoman empires, they take these simple laconic terms and act as if they have automatically renewed the Russo-Ottoman law of release. They do look at captives' conversion. Uh, so you see that the Rus Russians and Ottomans kind of like have just 
effortlessly adopted their existing rules to this new regime of multilateral agreements between Europe and the, you know, with European, European powers involved. However, over the next couple decades, things changed. The Ottomans then, the next couple decades of when you're after the Crimean War, are when Europeans start, you know, getting in, um, Europeans and Americans start getting serious about what we now call international humanitarian law. The Geneva Convention, 1864, uh, the Paris Declaration about Neutrality, 1856, uh, the Lieber Code in the U.S., the foundation of the modern use in Bello, uh, 1863. Uh, and so the Ottomans aren't by any means leading, leading any of these movements, but they generally seem to be okay with joining these, joining these treaties and kind of accepting the movement. They seem to think that to a certain extent, what we're doing is already fine. So why not do what the Europeans are doing? And this is the 1860s being kind of a height, height moment of a peak moment of Ottoman reformism and liberalism. But they certainly don't think that what they're doing is inherently incompatible with these new European traditions of humanity. Uh, and when you get to the 1877-78 Russo-Ottoman War, what you find is it's almost as if the content of Ottoman captivity has not changed. The Ottoman substantive rules of what they do has not changed. But the intellectual apparatus they use for thinking about it has been totally replaced. So what I mean by that is the 1877-78 war is marked by a series of debates in which the Russians accuse the Ottomans of violating the laws of war. The Ottomans accuse the Russians of it. Outside powers weigh in, the British weigh in, the Institute of National Law weighs in. Uh, and yet... Oh, and I should say also at the beginning of the war, the Ottomans request a, an opinion from a diplomat in the, for, in the foreign ministry about what the rules are on prisoners of war. And he responds with, by paraphrasing the 18th century Swiss thinker, Emmer de Vatel, one of the fathers of European international law. And he responds in French, by the way, kind of compounding this. And so what I think was going on here, but, and yet if you look at what the Ottomans actually do with captives during that war, it doesn't look that different from what they had done in the Crimean War or in the 1828-29 war earlier. So I think what you see happening here is sort of an effortless moment of the Ottomans saying, okay, fine, what we're basically doing, we think is already compliant with all these European rules they're talking about. So why don't we just start talking in terms of the European rules instead of talking in terms of our own traditions? So the, the legal justifications and descriptions they use for what they're doing changes. But the content of what they're doing doesn't change significantly. And so to be sure, a lot of what they're doing does not actually comply with these European rules. That's probably the case for the Europeans themselves, though, and for the Russians. But the Ottomans don't think there's any particular contrast here they need to worry about. Uh, and I think that shows you the, the way there's kind of an effortless replacement here. And so the Ottomans go right through to the end of the 19th century without there's no kind of awakening moment of saying, oh, we must change our prisoner practices. Because the changes that put them on the basic same, in the basic same universe as the European rules have already happened for in reasons internal to the Ottoman Empire and internal to the Ottoman contestation with their rivals like Russia, like Austria, like Iran. This is a great point. Having researched and written the book, has your general view of Ottoman state power and Ottoman statehood changed in any way? In other words, were the Ottomans just an empire state among other empire states between 1700 and, and 1878, of course, within their own specific cultural context? The Ottomans' role in, in kind of among other empires, how I think about it differently. Yeah. Okay. I think that I think I had a somewhat naive view as I began researching this book that 
Ottoman reform should be approached largely in terms of the Ottomans and their relationship to Western Europe. That's the way a lot of the scholarship has been written. I had a sense that I wanted to look at Ottoman-Russian relations that felt like they were probably were more important than suspected. And people like, again, Virginia Aksan, uh, reading their work led me to think about this. But I think I, I have a newer understanding of the Ottomans in a more Eurasian context as I finished the book, in the sense that the Ottoman relationship with Russia, I see for captivity, especially just how deeply that runs and how the Ottomans in so many ways are a are power among Europe, among Eurasian powers, similar to Russia, related to Russia, coming from the same cultural milieu. I mean, this is not quite related to captivity, but one thing I was amazed to find in the course of my research that I just I just love coming back to is that in one case the Russians described an, a captured Ottoman uh, a captured Ottoman officer, a Pasha, as which is a word I could not find in any Russian dictionary until I realized it's three horse tails, which is an Ottoman definition of rank, right? The Ottomans had different numbers of horse tails. They would hang from their standards and three horse tails is pretty high ranking. And the Russians have a Russian word for this. It just amazed me to think about the depths of contestation and conflict and military rivalry that you have to have for that to, you know, that to emerge. Or similarly, the fact that as far as I can tell, the best directory of the military sta battle standards of Janissary regiments that I've seen is in the catalog book for the Rumiansev Museum in, uh, I'm sorry, pause for a second. I'm sorry. I, I think I misspoke. It's the Suvorov Museum. Um, sorry. The best directory I've seen of like Janissary battle standards is the catalog of the Suvorov Museum in St. Petersburg because they captured so many of these. The Janissary standards uh, you know, ended up in Russian hands. So this kind of deep contact through conflict and like shared cultural understanding coming out of that amazed me. And then something I did not suspect really at all when I started the book, but I realized really belatedly in the research even, was the important role that Iran also plays in this. Like the fact that the first empire to demand and get a ransom free release of captives uh, in the uh, from, from, from the Ottomans was Iran under Nadir Shah was fascinating. And that Iran keeps popping up in this narrative. Like they're not a consistent rival like Russia is. They don't have resident ambassadors in the Ottoman empire in this period, in this, in the 18th century, in the same way that France or Britain does. So they're not a constant player, but they are a recurring player, whether it's then in the mid 18th century, or again, in the early 19th century, they pop up and like this, this, the sense of Ottoman connections that are extraordinarily powerful and important for this story to other Eurasian empires that you might not expect and that I don't I didn't think about nearly as strongly when I started this project as I did later on. And that really and I don't think that's contradictory to where scholarship is going nowadays. I'm not saying this is like a revolutionary contribution of the book. I'm not saying it's something new or that we wouldn't have known otherwise. I think scholars are moving in that direction. But for me, it was amazing to see how much my story connects that way. As a final question, uh, could you say a few words on what you are currently working on? How does your new project relate to what we have discussed today? I've got a number of projects going right now about kind of broadly centered around this question of Ottoman uh, relationship to the history of international law and the relationship between Islamic law and international treaty obligations in the Ottoman context. So I'm working on an article right now, as I said, about uh, about uh, the about this the Ottoman policies toward 
rebels in the Greek and Serbian wars, but also connecting that re rebellions of the early 18th century, 19th, sorry, the Greek and Serbian rebellions of the early 19th century, trying to connect that back to Ottoman responses to unrest in Moldavia and Wallachia, what's now Romania uh, in the late 18th century, but also uh, trying to look at how the Ottomans reasoned through the legal questions about captivity. And I think subtly shifted the definitions of what constituted rebellion under Islamic law. I've also got a very long running project that drills down on what seems like a very narrow topic, but I think is much more broadly revealing, which is a somewhat narrow debate in the uh, 1790s about the legal status of captured Austrian children who are claimed to have converted to Islam. And it gets questions of like, you know, what does a childhood conversion of religion mean? But it really opens up very large questions about how the Ottoman Empire understood its commitment to Islamic law and how that interacted with its commitments to international treaties. And it has some lessons for how we think about things today, for example, like this very vexed question about uh, Islamic law and international treaties and international human rights treaties. So uh, I'm trying to get you know, multiple dimensions of that. I also have some projects about later, later on, uh, later issues in Ottoman-Russian relations and international law that I hope are kind of coming together into a larger project about international Islamic law in the Ottoman context, not simply with respect to prisoners of war, but more broadly, uh, kind of trying to, to zoom out from that somewhat. Uh, so these are going to come out in, 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 in pieces over the next couple of years as I work these things through, and as it, I hope, comes to take shape as a larger book project as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Smiley, for joining me and discussing your work for New Books in Eastern European Studies. I have really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you. It's been a great discussion. I appreciate your questions and thanks for taking the time to read the book and engage with it and come up with such great questions for me.